Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible now. Uh, we're continuing in a series called Our Story as we work from Romans 9 through to the end of the book. And we're up to Romans 11 today, but we're just going to have the Bible reading, which is Romans 11, 33 to 36. But Ross will be taking us through the whole chapter. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Good morning, everyone, and a happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there, because I know you deserve it, that you get one day a year to be appreciated. I hope you're appreciated today. Uh, but I know it feels like sometimes there's only one day, but we really do appreciate our mums, all of us. Um, it is exciting to be here together. I'm so glad you're spending your Mother's Day here with us as our church family together. I want to pray now that as we meet God through his word, that his spirit will be meeting with us and we, we all are encouraged through uh, what God has to say to us this morning. Dear Father God, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to meet here as a church family, as friends, as family, as a community here. And as we come before you, as we listen to your word, we pray that you would speak to us that you would reveal yourself to us so we can understand you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting when you look at something, you learn something about the Creator or who made it, and it actually raises some curiosity of what they could be like. So there's things like, if you see a building, who would build a house upside down? What's that person thinking? What are they like? It sort of draws us into the, who does that? What about making a giant shark come into the top of your house. I can tell you the kind of person who does these sort of things and it's probably a male and it's probably some sort of architect arty sort of person but what about not just houses what about products? Who comes up with a product like this? This is a scented candle and I hope many of the mums here got uh, Mother's Day gifts this morning and maybe you might have got a scented candle as your gift but the scent for this one is like a brand new Apple Mac computer or iPhone. Who would like that? Who even comes up with these ideas? What sort of person creates something like this? This next one I really love. What about uh, bacon-looking Band-Aids? Who does that? Who comes up with that? I see that and go, that'd be fantastic. Every time you look at your saw, it makes you feel hungry. And I'm not sure if it smells like bacon, but Whoever come up with that idea, I'm in. Oh, I love that idea. But what sort of person does that? Again, I think they're men. Uh, men looking after themselves. They want the smell of the Apple Mac and they want the bacon. But also we ask the same question. What kind of God builds a church like this? When we look around us, a church of all different people from all different backgrounds. What sort of God, what do we learn about God who would build a church like this. I mean, to be honest, when we look around and we see each other here today, and doesn't matter if you're new or visiting or been here for many years, we kind of go, well, actually, if I saw you in the shopping centre and didn't know you, I probably wouldn't even stop and say hello, because we've probably got not much in common. 
But actually, as we sit here, it's like, wow, we call ourselves a family. What sort of God brings these people together? What sort of God brings people together? We can't even agree what coffee order we like. There's so many different versions of coffees and lattes and um, cappuccinos, and I want this milk, skinny milk, fat milk, or something not milk. Uh, I think sitting here, the worst nightmare we could ever have in this room is that everybody have a remote to the aircon. Can you imagine, like at home, we all want to play with the aircon? We wouldn't agree with what temperature, let alone, if I dare say, music, what style of music and what volume of music. If we all had the knob, we'd be fighting over that. We don't agree on lots of things, but yet we're thrown in all together. God builds his church and he says, okay, now I want you to love each other. I want you to serve each other. I want you to worship me together and I want you to be called a family. You're my church. I mean, it's even random that God would say, hey, I want your three pastors, one to be like a, a mecha- used to be a mechanic, one used to be like a storeman, and one used to be a footballer, and these are going to be your pastors. It's like, what well, sort of God does this? Has God really got a sense of humour that he would bring this all together and say, this is my church, my people, my children, who I love? It's like, what, what sort of God does this? it actually raises more questions than just wonder. So what sort of God brings some people in and not others? So there's a couple of questions come out of this. What makes you guys come this morning to be here to share this time together while there's other people who aren't here that we'd like to see here? Sort of God builds his church, but why does he... Welcome some and some are far off. There's two big questions come out of this passage today and it's from this early church in Rome some 2,000 years ago. And these questions, the first one, we'll we'll talk a bit more, but just getting us uh, into that frame of mind. Did God reject his people, the Jews? This comes from, this is the early church, so there was no church that existed before Jesus. There was the Jewish people. They were God's family, his children. Jesus came... Uh, he died, was rose again, and all of a sudden the gates were open for anybody to come into a relationship with God, to anybody to come into the family, and this was the birth of the church. Now, if you are sitting in this new church, so this is a letter to the church in Rome, it's a very new church made up of a whole bunch of different people, but they're united in Christ, so they believe in Jesus, so they come together as a family, and when you come together as a family, they're looking around and going, actually, For the last 2,000 years, God's been working through the Jews, the Israelites. And all of a sudden, we're here. We are the people of God. We are the the church. We are the family of God. And you would expect to see the Jews sitting in here. Because the last 2,000 years, they've been called the people of God. But there's a few Jews, but there's not many Jews. Does that mean God's rejected the Jews, given up on them, hasn't been faithful to them? And the next question for them is did the Jews stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Like, are the Jews ever going to see God and start believing and come back, or have they just gone too far and God God can't rescue them? Is that what God's doing? Now, they're random questions for us. There's not a big Jewish population here in Brisbane, but they're still the same questions, aren't they? 
when we see people that we think grow up in the church, should be a part of the church for life, but yet they disappear. You know, we see our kids grow up. We had a massive lot of baptisms the other day and we commit them to God and we say, we're a church family and they grow up in kids' church and they learn about Jesus and then all of a sudden we look around and if they're not here, it's like, has God not been faithful to them? Has God given up on them? And even if that's the case, have they wandered so far that God said, you've had your chance, that's it, and you're not welcome back. Is that the case? We could replace Jews for those we love in our circumstances. So they're big questions for the church in that day, but they're also big questions that are often close to many of us in our hearts about where people are at. We're here with people that we are surprised by and the ones we love, who would love to see know Jesus, love Jesus and be here with us. They're not here. What is God doing in that time? So big questions for us. But as we pull apart what's going on in the life of church, Paul draws us deeply into, you need to understand God if you're going to have these questions answered. So that's how he unpacks this. So we started, uh, we're going through chapter 11, chapter 11 verse 1. Uh, Paul poses the question, this letter to the church in Rome, uh, did God reject his people? By no means, Paul says, look, I'm a Jew and I'm here. God dramatically uh, rescued me to see Jesus and believe in Jesus and I'm here with you. So he didn't blanket the Jews are out, but what, when, when they talk about the Jews, they talk about Jews as a nation. But he says, certainly there's some Jews in this church that makes things complicated, as we'll see later in this letter. But then he goes on to answer. He pulls up this story of Elijah to illustrate what is going on and who's, who's giving up on who. Now this story from Elijah goes way back to 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, it's a great read, those few chapters there. Back in the Old Testament, we see Israel have been called to be God's people. They're, they're his family, they're his children. But yet Israel, um, they've, they've got questions about God. So the king of Israel at that time is King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Their name comes up a few times in Scripture. But King Ahab uh, is king of Israel. Yes, we have one God, the true God, the God of the Bible. But Israel get a bit secure, insecure about trusting this God. So what they do is they do a deal with neighbouring countries. And what they used to do in those times is to marry the daughter of the neighbouring king. So he marries Jezebel, not a Jew, not an Israelite, from another nation. She comes into the castle... Uh, the palace, and says, well, actually, I'm not sure about this God of the Bible that you guys talk about. I have my own gods. I have this God called the Baal. Baal is like the God of all gods. And, and Asherah, she's another God of fertility. I have these gods. How about we combine them all? And we can be a nation with many gods, many good gods. King Ahab thinks, yeah, this is an idea. We can bring down our God, the God of the Bible, take on these other gods... And then Jezebel says, actually, I feel a bit left out still. I think we need our own priests for Baal and Jezebel. So she brings in 450 priests into the palace, into the palace, uh, so they can help worship these other gods. And all of a sudden, the God of the Bible's getting smaller, the, the gods of the nations are getting bigger, because then the next step is, actually, I don't like your priests, the God of the Bible priests, the Jewish priests, so they start killing them. They kill them all, but one, and that guy's Elijah. He's a prophet. 
He's the last one left. He's like, what? This nation of Israel, this God's people, God's family, and they've pretty much got rid of God. They've taken the gods of the other nations, and I'm the only one left. I need to, to show them that the God of the Bible is real. So he arranges with the king, we're going to meet on the mountain with your 450 other prophets, with as many people of Israel you can to watch, and we're going to have a, a fight kind of thing. That I'm going to ask you guys, the 450 prophets of Baal to set up an altar and I'll do the altar too we're going to build an altar with stones on the bottom wood on on top of that to burn and we're going to make a sacrifice of a bull on top and then we're going to ask our gods your god and I'll ask my god to set those altars alight and we'll see which one is real and which one's fake everybody said yeah this is a great idea let's have a trade-off to see who's who's whose god is real so the 450 prophets uh, the priests of Baal set up their altar, you know, their stones, their wood. They kill their calf and put it on top. And it uh, starts in the morning. Everybody's watching, the king, uh, everybody's watching on. <clears throat> and these 400 prophets uh, set it all up. They start dancing around, chanting to Baal, and nothing's really happening. So they chant louder, and still nothing's happening. This is going on for some time now. And Elijah starts mocking them. He says, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's not listening to you and you need to sh- chant louder to wake him up. So they chant louder, they're dancing louder, they get to the point where they're even cutting themselves, shedding their own blood to try and please Baal. Elijah's like, it's a false god. He's not only is he away? Could he be travelling somewhere? He even says, is he on the toilet? Is he busy? Too busy for you guys? He taunts them about how much, how serious they're taking their false gods. Gets to after midday and nothing's happening. This has gone all morning. And Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. Actually, sets up his rock, sets up his wood. They choose a bull for him to put on, put on this bull. And before he calls on the name of God, he says, actually, uh, I'm going to dig a trench around my altar. And why don't you guys get buckets of water and wet mine? Just wet it. So they all get buckets of water and wet his altar. He says, I don't think you did a good enough job. Go and do it again. So second time, they douse in water. And he goes, well, look, I just want you guys to be really clear this is really wet. So do it a third time. So they've covered this thing with water. The trench is full of water. It's all soaking wet. Then Elijah calls on his God. God sends down this fireball and lights up not just the cow, uh, the bull that was sacrificed, but all the wood. Even the rocks catch a light. The water didn't stop it. It's all burning up in front of them. And the crowd's like, wow. The God of the Bible. He is the one true God. We will follow this God. He is the true and living God. We will follow this God. And Elijah walks away pretty happy, like God's shown them. He's revealed himself to them. This is awesome. The next day, this is not weeks, months, or years later. The next day, King Ahab so upset, Jezebel so upset the queen. They said, no, no, this one, this one last priest of God of the Bible, this one last prophet, he's got to go. There's a death warrant on Elijah. So instead of giving up the Baals and believing in God of the Bible, they go, no, 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 this is not good enough. Let's, let's bump off Elijah. There's a death warrant out. People after him to kill him. This is where we find Elijah. He's sitting in a cave and he says this prayer that Paul brings up. Paul says, don't you know, Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. And this is his prayer in the cave. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. 
I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what does God answer him? God answers, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You kind of go, as a nation, they've got rid of God. They've looked at what the other nations have, gone, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. That looks good. I'll have more of that. Thank you very much. And they've lowered their picture of God and built up their picture of these other gods. You know, you look down at the temple at that time. Nobody's lining up behind Elijah saying, yeah, we're on your team. Look, the temple is empty. We're expecting it to be full of people worshipping God. There's no one there. But yet God says, out of his grace, out of his grace, I will choose a remnant. I will choose 7,000 out of a whole nation. They haven't bound the knee. They're going to be the ones that follow me. Why would God save anybody? They're rat bags. They've given up on him. They're certainly not owning him. But God says, I will choose to save some. I will choose to save some. Paul says, this is what's going on in Israel right now. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God. So this is the church after Jesus, a new church. Some Jews, but not many Jews. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. It's a gift from God. It's a generosity from God. It's a kindness of God. What then, he says, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. What he's saying, they can be earnest, they can be genuine, they can be zealous for, for eternity, they can be zealous for a relationship with God, but they've actually rejected, they haven't believed the way to God. So when Jesus turned up and says, I am the way, they've rejected Jesus. You know the story, when Jesus turned up and, and showed that he was divine, showed he was the son of God, he's doing all these miracles, doing these amazing teaching, who killed Jesus? It was the Jews. They rejected him. They're not going to believe in Jesus because they've got their own religion. They've got their own acts. They've got their own traditions. They refuse to believe. But God says, I'm going to save some only by grace, only by his generosity, out of his kindness. Now, what Paul's explaining here is kind of the outworking in church of what he's been talking about the last two chapters that we've looked at the last two weeks. If we haven't been here the last two weeks, let me give you like a, a three-minute summary. Uh, in chapter 9, it's very clear, Paul says, God is the God of all things. He is supreme. When God, God's will is the ultimate will. God's choice is ultimate. So he needs to choose us. If we're going to be a part of his family, he needs to choose us 100%. If God chooses some and doesn't choose others, well, who are we? It's God 100%. So a verse out of that, uh, Paul says, salvation does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It's only because of God's mercy that he even chooses some, but it's God's will 100%. That was chapter 9. If you turned up the next week and got chapter 10, we say, you know what? Paul points, start pointing the finger at us. He goes, actually, you need to proclaim Jesus Lord. He says in chapter 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's looking, looking at all of us square in the eye. You believe in Jesus and you will be saved. 100%. You need to take responsibility. You need to choose. You need to get your will to choose to follow Jesus and call him Lord. 100%. 
It relies on you. And you kind of go, hang on a minute. Chapter 9, 100% God, us, 100% us. How does this work? How does this work? That, that, are they contradictory? Is he, you know, just having a bad day, writes one, then changes his mind, writes the other. How do we hold these two things together? Often we get tempted to think about, um, there's this image that goes around sometimes where like we're drowning in the water, we're going to die. So we've got to reach up our hand to God and God being a merciful God will reach down to us. It's a little bit like God will meet us halfway. He'll come down 50%. If we're willing to put up our hand 50% and grab onto him, that's how it works. And it's kind of it's a bit like God is not able to reach us 100%. Or we're not able to get to God 100%, but, we're, but we've got to be good enough. It still depends on us being good enough to work, to be religious, to be moral, to get to God, be good enough for God. That's not what Paul's saying. 100%, 100%. How does that work? He's actually describing what a real living relationship looks like. So for example, in marriage for example, uh, like in a wedding, we're asking people, are you committed to the other person? 100%. I did a, mar- a wedding last week, last Sunday. And it's like asking the guy, will you take uh, this lady to be your wife, to give yourself to her, to love her for the rest of your life? What if he said, well, you know, I don't know whether I can do it 100%, but, you know, I think I can give it a good try. Maybe 50% I'll commit to this. It's like, that's not marriage. That's not love. What are you saying? You you can only give yourself 50% to it. And she says, no, no, that's okay, because I'm not sure whether I can commit to him 100%. not sure whether I love him 100%. I'm pretty sure I can do 50%, though. With 50-50, we, we can make it. It's like, that's not going to work, is it? That's not a relationship. A relationship is when one person says, I'm committed to you 100%. And the other person says, yes, I'm committed to you 100%. This is the way it's described. But what's going on for Israel is they've done this. They've gone, well, I'm in this 100%. I'm religious. I want gods. I, I believe in the divine. I want to live uh, in heaven for eternity. But my idea of God actually is not as big as that, actually. I think because I can see other things in the world and in life. If I try hard, that's good enough. Uh, but I've made myself a small God. You know, he's there. I like him around but he's not going to have too much influence on me. That's what's going on for Israel. They looked at the other nations and going, actually, they've got other gods. We'll make their gods equal with our God. Actually, over time, let's get more of the other gods and less of the God of the Bible. And they've reduced him down to, to next to nothing. There's one priest left. That's what's happened in Israel. Now, it's very easy for us as churches to do that today. If we don't hold this 100% God and 100% us, if we, we say, yeah, it's all about us, but, but it doesn't really matter about God, we don't have a high view of God, then we start thinking, well, what's negotiable and what's not? And to be honest, society puts a lot of pressure on us. You know, what's our views on gender and marriage? You know, the world says, oh, the church, if you stick to the Bible... That's archaic, that's old. You need to be progressive, you need to move beyond that. So they're pressuring. What about the idea of abortion? Abortion should be our choice. It should be up to us whether we want um, our pregnancies to go or not. So, you know, you guys who don't believe in that, you know, you're depriving our rights. So give up some of your stranglehold on Scripture. What about, I've even got a friend who uh, goes to another church 
a well-known denomination, goes to another church, calls himself a Christian, and we were talking one day, and he says, oh, is your church one of those churches that believe everything in the Bible? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, what about things like miracles? You don't believe in the miracles, do you? I'm like, you mean like Jesus is raising from the dead? He says, yeah, you don't believe in those. Like, it literally happened, do you? Yeah. And he's like, well we've moved on that we're more progressive we're a liberal church and we we think it's all it's all a bunch of stories to teach us things to help us to be better people looking at me and laughing at me going you don't really believe like how gullible are you and i'm like but that's how big our god is he can do this stuff and does do this stuff and this is a god i follow so even churches can lower their idea of god to say it's all about us i actually make decisions on how big i want god to be and what I want him to look like. It even impacts us as individuals. You know, pressure on us, how you live your life. It's not just, we use the God of the Baals and God of Jezebel that had idols and things like that, but it's taking on their values and their beliefs that our society pushes values and beliefs on us too. I mean, you just mentioned the, the gender stuff, but even stuff like prosperity, how important that is, our rights, and uh, how it's all individualism, it's about me, but yet, when we look at the God of the Bible, he says, no, it's not just about you as an individual, it's about you as a church, as a body, a family. That it's being eroded that way. See, we can easily have, be persuaded that God is not as big as we, that he's pictured to be in scripture, that we, we make a small God. That's all about us. I determine who God is and how much influence he has. It's very tempting to go down that path. But when you look at what's going on for these guys, it's actually, when we get back to the question, did God abandon them? God says, just in the last chapter, chapter 10, concerning the Jews, he says, concerning Israel, it says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He says, not that they stuffed up and I'm not going to speak to them ever again. He says, no, I'm a father God. I stand out there with my hands. I wait for them to come back to me. Even though they're brats, they don't deserve it. My grace is so big. I will welcome them home. But they walked out on me. That's confronting. Did God abandon his people? Those people didn't deserve to be saved, but yet he saved the 7,000. He saved some in the making of the church and the Jewish people. His grace, his grace is more than we, we understand. What about the second question? Did they stumble as so far beyond recovery? Once they're gone, are they gone forever? And the same question could be asked about us, the ones closest to us that have been here with us, the ones we prayed for and hoped that they would be here for all their life. They're gone. Are they allowed back? Will they, God accept them back once they've walked out? Paul goes on to use an illustration about a vine for this one. You know, if you, if you have got a garden and you grow vines, particularly fruit vines, uh, you know there's a season where you've got to trim them back. You've got to prune them. And then uh, if you want to change different stock, you graft in different branches and then they bear more fruit. Now, Jesus said a similar story. Jesus described the, fruit, the vine as being the root uh, and, and the base of it is himself. It's God and Jesus is God. But God is also a gardener that prunes. And what he's saying here is the, the branches that have been pruned are Israel. They're the Jews. They've been pruned off. But God in his kindness, 
God in his grace has grafted you guys in, you Gentiles. Gentiles are just people who aren't Jews. If you don't identify as a Jew, you're a Gentile. In this case, I would be a Gentile. But you Gentiles, out of God's kindness, have grafted you into God's family. You weren't naturally there, but God has grafted you in. God's kindness to you, he's brought you in. Again, not because you deserve it, not because you're good enough, but out of his kindness, he does that. But it's not about are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? It's a question of belief. Because the bit I've highlighted there, he says they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand by faith. They're out because they didn't believe. But you're in because you believed. You accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. You trusted him, 100%. So God's grafted you in. But he says, do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, he will not spare you either. It's like, what holds you in? He's not Jew or Gentile or nationality or background. It's whether you believe in Jesus or not. He's the one who holds you in. Jesus is what makes the difference. Now, it's interesting that he goes down this path because he doesn't answer their questions straight away, but he's actually looking them square in the eye and says, don't be arrogant, don't take your faith for granted, don't think that it's, yay, I'm in the family. And you can imagine, if you're a Gentile and you're sitting in church today and you're looking around going, hey, look, I'm surprised there's no Jews, the ones that claim to be God's family for 2,000 years previously. The Jews were the family of God. If you were a Gentile, you weren't allowed to worship with them. You know, in the time of the tabernacle, you couldn't go near the tabernacle. In the time of the temple, you couldn't go near the temple. You had to be in an outer court. In the time of the synagogues, the closest you could get was the foyer. You weren't allowed in to worship. Gentiles have always been out. And they were no, the Jews said, we're the family of God, you guys stay out of here. Jews never married a Gentile, they didn't do business with a Gentile, they certainly didn't worship a Gentile, they didn't eat meals with Gentiles, they didn't associate Gentiles, because you guys aren't the people of God, we are. And it turned into some form of arrogance, identity that we're in. God has chosen us, and we're the blessed ones. Now the Gentiles are sitting in church going, where are all the Jews? Actually, how cool is this? This is role reversal. We're sitting in church. God has said, if we believe, we're the chosen ones. We're people of God. We're in the family. You know, it's easy to do, fall down the same trap as the Jews going, hey, aren't we good? Aren't we fortunate? The Jews have blown it. So they become arrogant and cocky like the Jews were. This is what they're saying. But what... Paul is saying here, if we go back to our, uh, what we saw in the last two chapters, it's 100% God, 100% you. But the danger, if you go, actually, I've got a big view of God, big view of God's choice. He's chosen us, so I'm in. Yay! If we get arrogant and cocky about it, that we take our faith for granted, it's actually going, well, it doesn't really matter what I do because I know I'm chosen. I'm safe. So as long as I get here at church on Sunday, as long as I am identify, I've got my cross in my pocket and carry my Bible around my suitcase, I'm good, I'm a Christian. But the other six days of the week, it doesn't really matter what I do or what I believe because I know God, he's a big God. So as we have a big view of God, big understanding of God's choice, which is true and right, but actually forget about our responsibility of being faithful and believing in him, we can fall into a very religious arrogance trap 
And this is what churches can fall into at times too. This, is, this kind of describes how I would describe the church I grew up in. So, you know, just to point the finger back at my denomination, this is my camp, that we, can, we have a big view of God and we often get together, the church I, I grew up in, got together and was going, yeah, this is us and our prayers and our songs all reflected. Isn't it good that, that you know, we're God's chosen people, you know, the onward Christian soldiers, it's us against the rest of the world. And it just painted a very big picture about isn't it good that we've got God, but we don't actually own it in a relationship ourselves. We haven't grasped that idea of growing in faithfulness, growing in belief. It's all about us. And, and we see that when churches become all about their brand, their identity, their denomination, it's all about them, and they forget about Jesus. Jesus seems to take a back seat. Churches are all about their traditions, what they value as a denomination, but Jesus just sort of fades into the background. We can be guilty of that. And we've got to watch that too. That we be a church that's centred around Jesus and our belief in Jesus. So Paul says, you good, you've got a good view, big view of God to you Gentiles, but you watch your faith. Watch your faith. Don't give up believing. Don't take it for granted. Of course, just as the Jews were cut off, you could be too. And he finishes this bit off in verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Um, and, uh, and if they do not perish in unbelief... Sorry, my screen's a bit broken there. That... Actually, they can come back. It's not about Jew-Gentile. It's about belief. They can come back if they just would believe in Jesus. And you too don't take your belief for granted. You've got to believe. Now, again, we are pressured to negotiate our beliefs because our society might use the, the words Baals and Asherahs, but, but what about other gods that have come into our society? Let me give you a few examples. The God of sex oh yeah, if I get sex, that's where, where it's fulfilment and joy and that's what life is all about and I need to be in relationship, I need to have intimacy even if it's not with the same person because that's my heaven. And if I'm not having sex, that, that's hell. That's like loneliness because I'm not accepted, nobody loves me. It's turned into a God, so we worship sex, we pursue sex in everything we do as a society. What about money and success? Prominence. That if you want, you want to be somebody in life, you want to live life to the full, so you need to be pursuing all you can to build up your wealth, build up your comfort, be somebody successful. Because that's what heaven is like. But hell is like being poor, living in poverty. We don't want that. That would be terrible. We don't want to be poor and we'll protect our money, protect our stuff, because we want to be wealthy and successful so money becomes our god that we pursue that's our aim in life to be comfortable in life materialistically what about uh what about the idea of um being i'll be honest i forgot my third example what about the idea of being happy the pursuit of happiness, that it's all about me being happy. If you're living life and you're not happy, you're doing something wrong. That heaven becomes 
all about me and me just being joyful all the time. So the idea of if it doesn't feel right, what are you doing it for? If it feels right, do it. If it makes you happy, just do it. And the idea of hell then becomes suffering. We don't want suffering. That's bad. That's, that's terrible. I'm doing something wrong. I need to pursue joy and happiness. But it's interesting in all these things, when you look at King Ahab. King Ahab, he had a harem. Like he, did, he wasn't missing out. He had money. He had success, prominence. He lived in the palace. He, had, he was the king. He could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, whatever made him happy. He had all those things compared to Elijah. Elijah is alone. He's got no company. He didn't have a wife. He's living in a cave. He didn't have a house or anything any material possessions like that. He was on the run all the time. Um, and he was what we would call, he's living um, oppressed. He's living in poverty. He's living in pain. And we would go, who's the winner here? Surely King Ahab. No, King Ahab's going to burn. God deals with him later. It's Elijah that gets taken to heaven because he's, he's drawn to God. He says, I'm not going to let God 100%. I know he's a big God and I know it's up to me to be responsible to hold on to him and I'm going to cling to him because otherwise what hope have I got? Elijah holds these things together. So what Paul is saying is God is full of grace. God is full of kindness. God is building his church. But actually, are you, do you believe in that God? Are you clinging to him 100% or is that becoming a bit negotiable for you? Don't. Don't give up belief because you too can be cut off. How Paul brings this together, and it's worth just spending a minute on, is just these last few verses where Paul steps back and goes, do you realise what you've got here in the church? That is, he explains God and, it, and what God does and how God thinks. And he goes, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's like the church is a testimony to that. I remember when I was at Bible college, one of the projects we had to do was write up a vision or a plan for a church. We weren't even, didn't even, weren't even leading churches at that stage. I wrote, I think it was like a 20-page document. This is what I think my church is going to look like. I'm so thankful today that it doesn't look like that because God's idea of this church is so much bigger, so much better than what I could ever dream of. The depths of his wisdom, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. So his plans are great. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? In other parts of the Bible, in these last couple of chapters, it, it says what a mystery it is. Not a mystery of that, we can't understand how God thinks. Uh, you know, who knows? It's a secret. It's not that kind of mystery. It's a mystery in that it is so big, we can't get our heads around. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? It's like God doesn't owe us anything. For from him are all things, through him are all things, and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Like it's all God's work, what you see here. And I delight, sometimes I really pinch myself to go, is this real, what's happening here in this church? One of the things I delight in is uh, serving in the, the newcomer's morning tea. You get to meet a whole bunch of new people, you get to hear how people are feeling about church. And some of the stories and people you meet are amazing how God is building his church here. Uh, we met 
uh, Kim and I met Yvonne uh, six months ago, a while, while ago there. And when we met Yvonne, she's 85, she's sitting over there, I won't embarrass her too much, but make sure you meet her at some point. The, um, she says, look, I'm 85, I've got a rich Scottish heritage, a rich Presbyterian heritage, uh, and I'd like to talk about church. So Kim and I met with her, and it's like, oh, look, you know, church is my baby, not like how you used to go to church. And we kind of had doubts whether she would fit in here. Yvonne comes to this church and says, Ross, I feel like I'm home. This is home to me. And you go, man, I would not have picked that. Sorry, Yvonne, uh, I love you. The, um, and I'm so glad you're here. But it's like, I didn't see that coming. God's building his church. There's other stories uh, that are shared in the Newcomer's Morning Tea about some people have been here a while and they said, look, I've been to other churches and I've got a story that when I share it, I feel judged. The churches don't want to know me because of my story. But I've come here, I don't feel judged at all. I feel accepted. And I'm like, wow, that's God's grace and God's kindness showing through our community that we would welcome people in, no matter what your story other stories about people with families. They said, look, we've been to churches. We feel really com- uncomfortable with our kids because they don't want any noise around with kids making noise and disruption in the service. I come here and I see all the kids and all of a sudden this is a place for us because the, the amount of kids here. And he says, where else can you go in society that you can sit in a room where there's newborns all the way up to 85, I might have older people, 90 years old, all in one room together, unified. The closest thing I could think of was maybe a doctor's surgery. You've been in there, sometimes there's kids, sometimes there's oldies and I'm in the middle. But that's kind of a bad example. But where do we come? That We can call each other brothers and sisters and we can call each other family because God's brought us together unified in Christ. Where else does that happen in the world? It's only by God's amazing grace that we're here together. And it does, it is a pinch yourself moment. Because of God's kindness and he's bringing us together. That to us and to all who are far off, who believe, God says, welcome to the family. He's the Father God with the open arms. See, we're a church, we, we say our mission is to make and grow disciples. Make and grow disciples. So if you've been here in this church, we want to see you grow. We want to see you nurture. We want to see you cling to God, 100% faith. But we also want to see people made disciples, that people who are far off, that we can have confidence that God's kindness and his grace is so big that he's there with open arms as a father God welcoming those who need to know him. Now, if, if you're here today and you're hearing this for the first time, I really want you to keep uh, thinking about that and talking about that, whoever you're with today. What does it mean to believe? Why is it so important? Ask those questions. But if you're here today and bit on the edge with your faith, thinking, I'm not sure it's worth it because it's so much easier to live the way society is telling me. Let me assure you that the God of the Bible is so much bigger than that and so much worth clinging on to, 100%. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we just thank you for, for your love, your grace and your kindness that you show to us. That we, whether we've been to church all our lives or we're, we're new to the faith or even investing, investigating who you are and whether it's worth having faith. Lord, I pray that as you promise that you will meet us where we are, that you will draw us in, that you will not push us away and reject us, but you will love us and welcome us into your family. 
Lord, help us to be a church that glorifies you, that, not gets, that does not get distracted from Jesus, that we're a church that depends on you, that we pray to you in all things, we come to you for all things, that we glorify you in all things, knowing you're the one who's building your church. Lord, thank you for the security that gives us. Thanks for the confidence. Thanks for the new life it gives us through Jesus. Amen.